Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Cut to the Race podcast. Today we're doing a special episode on tech. All the things tech about F1. Where we've been, where we're going, what we've seen in testing, what the new regulations mean, and just loads of good Formula Nerds stuff. With me to discuss this, we have a special guest. Uh, But before I introduce him, we have Sam. How are you, Sam? I am all good, thank you, Ollie. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, James and his dog in the background, how are you? As ever, yeah, all good, thanks. Good stuff. And we've got Craig Scarborough on the show to talk tech with us. Craig, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Uh, No, thank you for having me back. And uh, yeah, I'm good. It's good to be here. Good stuff. Now, for those people who didn't listen to the last episode we did with you, it's quite a while ago. um, Do you want to just summarise who you are, what you love, what you do, and um, anything else about yourself? Wow, that's um, a broad question. Um, so, I mean, for, for, for basically, my, my sole interest in life, it often seems, is just in the tech of motorsport, cars, motorbikes, three-wheelers, anything that's got wheels and uh, moves around, really. And for now, what into my 22nd year of covering the technology of Formula One, uh, I do that um, for F1 itself. Uh, for various magazines, uh, YouTube sites, and uh, obviously I'm very active on social media, just trying to explain the, the, the technicalities of racing cars to people. 
So your Twitter is an absolute must for anyone that is interested in F1. Whether you're a complete tech nerd or you just want to understand it a bit better, I've got to say it's been one of my not my, one of my destinations for a long time, um, and I know that a lot of people will say the same. And um, so let's get stuck into it, Craig. So let, let's just start very broad for those people who understand maybe. You know, the F1 car has an engine, it has some aerodynamics uh, and four wheels. Um, We all know that there's big changes coming into this 2022 season, which we're about to embark on. Um, But can you just try to help us understand what those, you know, in simple terms, what those changes are and um, what we can expect the the differences of those, those to mean? So the massive regulation changes that you've got this year, they're uh, all aimed around kind of one big idea, which is to get the the teams and the individual cars much closer, uh, uh, both literally in terms of the ability of them to be able to spend money and resources, but equally to be able to follow each other out on track and to hopefully make some uh, uh, exciting overtaking manoeuvres. Um, and this spans literally every area of the car um I, i've covered i mean i've been into formula one since i was uh, a young boy and i've never known such a wholesale change in regulations that have, has ever occurred there's been ch- big changes in engines there's been big changes in aerodynamics but never anything that's really touched every aspect of the car so the big things that you're going to see uh, are cars that look very different all of the the spiky, complicated bodywork and wings and barge boards and add-ons that you've had, uh, particularly over the past sort of handful of years, that's all been got rid of. Uh, The little tiny 13-inch wheels with the big fat tyres, they've gone. We've now got much more um, relatable 18-inch wheels with um, slightly larger tyres. The engine remains about the same. So you've still got like a 1,000 horsepower 1.6 turbo hybrid packed in the back. Um, But... Everything else underneath has changed as well. So you've got brakes, suspension, gearbox, safety, structures. Everything has changed. And as I say, it's all with the aim of allowing these cars to get much closer throughout a season and, you know, as they go around each lap on track. Okay, so I guess the the, the first thing that I was kind of uh, interested to know was you often go to the tests and the launches. Um, so... A, were you able to go to Barcelona um, a few days ago? And also, what do you make of the whole pre-season test being kind of downgraded or kind of, you know, that fiasco surrounding that or shakedown as as the sport has now referred to it as? I wasn't in Barcelona this year. Um, I go to pre-season testing most years. I have done, you know, sort of throughout. There was a time I could only actually get to testing and couldn't get into races. Um, It's oddly gone slightly the other way now. Um, So I wasn't in Barcelona. I wish I was. Uh, And unfortunately, I won't be in Bahrain either because of other situations that are kind of revolving around me at the moment. And it's, it's strange how it's changed this year because, you know, of all of the years of testing, shall we call it, if we include the term shakedown within that, uh, sort of pre-season events. Um, yeah, you know, they, uh, the thing that I always look forward to every year, this is kind of like my Christmas, really, seeing all the new cars, all the new regulations. And this year has been quite different because Barcelona, as you say, was a, as a shakedown. It was very much downplayed 
um, by Formula One and the FIA to be just a just a shakedown. Uh, the teams downplayed it as well. Also, the teams unveiling their cars, which again is you know a core part of this time of the year, where often they would invite journalists. Obviously, with COVID and the ongoing situation uh, around the pandemic, it's not possible for us to go to these events at the moment. So I haven't actually seen any of these cars physically in person at this point, which is really unusual for me. Um, but uh, you know, I've been seeing you know launches and testing for you know for, for for over twenty years now, and yeah, it just seems odd that of all years, this is the one where we're limited to just you know two three day uh, events, and only one of them is a, an official test. So it does leave uh, a bit of confusion, you know, as to what what on earth is going on. And um, you know, I've noticed as testing has been televised and uh, even if it's just with you know, you know youtube clips at the end of the day or uh, summaries by sky or formula one itself at the end of the day people love this you know it's a great time of year we've all been missing track action and you know all the stories from f1 since uh well normally it would have been sort of from november but obviously the season finished so much later this year and it seemed to roll almost into christmas with the fallout of abu dhabi so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a, an opportunity that's been missed here and hopefully there things will be a little bit better organised and uh, coordinated um, by both the teams and, you know, F1 itself uh, for next season so that, you know, the fans really get the most out of what is, you know, a great time of year. For sure. You yeah, know, absolutely. Yeah, it, it seems like a quite an odd kind of departure from the norm uh, this year. There were definitely rumours that it was uh, it was to do with Bahrain maybe paying a bit more. Was there any truth in that? Do you know, to get the, uh, the official first I, test? I, I, I only hear the same rumours as you do on that. Yeah. Um, that sounds a little far-fetched, um, but the, uh, the official testing does start in Bahrain. So um, for whatever reason, um, I don't know, but uh, all the same, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, having live feeds from testing next week. And um, seeing how these teams and these cars are getting on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of how they're getting on, before the test, did you have a gut feeling for who would nail the new regs? And after what we've seen, however little it may have been in Barcelona, do you think you were right? Um, hmm, interesting one. I don't think I had a gut feel in terms of anyone that was obviously going to be making a big jump because I think throughout the winter uh, and even through the latter part of last year, you had lots of teams kind of talking themselves up or the media talking teams up, you know, McLaren and Ferrari in particular, Haas, who uh, gave so much of you know the past season and a half away to development for 2022. So, um, you know, you can never predict who's going to make a great job of the new rules and you can never predict who's going to make a complete hash of them. Um, if anyone's asked me on social media over the past few weeks, I just say, I think pretty much we're going to end up with the same order as we had last year. Um, you know, people may overtake each other in either the drivers of the constructors championship, but by and large, you know, the haves and the have nots are quite clear in formula one. There's going to be some obvious tail enders, um, a competitive midfield. And I think increasingly, as we did see a lot of last year, certainly through the middle of last year, a kind of a top four team package, which obviously is Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, McLaren. And I think testing has certainly borne that out so far that, you know, those top four teams are doing well. We've got lots more to see from lots of them. 
And that midfield pack is looking very hard to predict. You know, Alfa Romeo and Haas had a, a fairly awful test uh, for various reasons. So we obviously now need to get to Bahrain to understand exactly where they're at, because both of those cars, from my point of view, at least, you know, in design terms are quite exciting. But that for me isn't unusual. I mean, I look at Sauber every year and just like wonder at some of the great detail on there. But then obviously it doesn't mean that that car then comes out and is a great race car. So uh, unfortunately, there's always a disconnect between, you know, the visible design and the final performance. But um, I think we've still got some scope for a bit of shake-up here. Um, I don't think we're going to see necessarily the dominance that we've had since 2014 of, you know, Mercedes in particular, maybe with just one team kind of getting their foot in through the year. I think it's going to be very much more dependent on the circuit and the weather and everything else that's going on in their development path. Those top four teams could be fighting for a victory any any weekend. So you don't think... uh... Haas have done a brawn by abandoning a year early and it was supposed uh, again, to be, it had a, a, an advanced car, didn't they? A few people said. Yes. I mean, it was, I was trying to find the right words to describe the Haas. I don't think the most developed car, I think was a lot of people described it as is, is the right term, but it was certainly the most detailed. I mean, you can tell that the car that they've released is a car that they're about to go and race, which probably isn't the case with someone like, for example, um, McLaren or Mercedes, you just know that those cars are going to change visibly uh, into the next test, into the first race, or you know maybe after the first few races. So yeah, I mean, in the build up to the season, you know, I've sit there as I do, kind of sketching and drawing the cars, reading the regulations, trying to think of you know what shape of this and what way of doing this, that, or the other would work, and trying to find the loopholes. And I don't think I saw that necessarily in any of the cars. You've got the Haas, which is. A really interesting car. You've got the Williams, which is a fascinating car, particularly probably the most radical one out there. And then you have the quite unusual Aston Martin. But when you we see what we saw in those first tests, none of that suggests to me we've got one of those kind of brawn moments, which um, perhaps is a shame. But um, I think the regulations were worded so that no one could really find a big silver bullet amongst you know the loopholes and the uh, the little areas that the uh, the regulators often miss out um, this year the the team at formula 1 or FIA as it is now um did a very thorough job in making sure these regulations were not just well thought out but then tested revised and then kind of kept going through that loop to make sure nothing kind of unexpected came out of them so um, I think they've done a great job but maybe just take a little bit of the excitement away um, one of the one of the big talking points at the moment. I, I'd like I'd like to hear hear your take on this. Now we we put an article out earlier. Um, eight out of ten teams are overweight. Now this is um, the cars. This is not the team personnel. Um, what's going on here, Craig? Are they overweight? Are they not? I'm seeing so many different reports about this. Does it matter? Are they playing games? What what what's going on behind the scenes here? So these new cars are heavier by regulation. Uh, the regulations take them up to 795, I think it is off the top of my head, including the, the driver, which they allow 80 kilograms for. And the reason for that, the fact that they're heavier, um, even though some of them are slightly shorter, is largely because the wheels and tyres are heavier. There's a whole heap of extra crash and safety um, features on these cars that wasn't there last year. And this big new floor is incredibly heavy 
Um, and I think people kind of forget how strong that floor needs to be, despite some of the uh, apparent flexibility that we did see through testing. So the teams will always be at this stage of a major regulation change behind the curve on weight. And yes, it does matter because if you could save, um, how can I word this? If, if you could save any factor in the car um, by 1%, uh, improve it by 1%, the two areas that will give you the biggest gain would be tyre grip or reduction in weight. Um, and that means they trump, you know, suspension, aero, engine power, all these other things we always talk about. If you could make that car just 1% lighter, it would give you, you know, like almost a tenth of a lap. So actually, no, it's not a tenth, it's actually a hundredth, sorry, because I was originally working on um, a slightly different maths. So yeah, it's really important. And being 10 kilograms overweight, which is the kind of ballpark everyone's discussing that the teams are at, it is a big issue if you've got someone that you're competitive against that is on that minimum weight limit. Now, these cars will develop quickly. They will lose weight over the first few races. That's not unusual. And I think more is being made of this than is really out there. Um, there is absolutely no reason for the uh, sport to change the, the minimum weight regulations because the cars have passed their crash tests. They've got the allocation for the driver. They can save weight in areas that they choose to do so. So I think that's entirely right that you leave the teams to just get on this. Don't make any, any changes because if anything, we want the sport to be getting into lighter cars, not into, you know, adding 10 kilograms on just because the team suddenly uh, find themselves behind the curve. So it's, it's interesting. There's lots of talk about, you know, some teams have made their cars purposely shorter in order to make them a little bit lighter. And that is borne out slightly by the fact um, that if you could account for a, a, a five centimetre slice of gearbox casing or nose cone or chassis, um, that would add up to about three or four kilos. So, yeah, if your car was 10 centimetres shorter, you could be uh, 10 kilograms lighter than a car that is at the uh, the maximum length. So there's yeah there is something behind this, but I think that's just a a natural part of of the rules and um, you know uh, to be just kind of forgotten and uh, let the teams get on with it. I think I heard that Mercedes were aiming to go for a shorter car because they've always had a bit of a boat since the, over the hybrid era, uh, and they were, they were supposedly going for agility. Is that is that another? Just a panic yeah, room, I read that. I read that report as well, and thinking, well, yeah, there was absolutely no source for it whatsoever. We know some of the teams are a little bit shorter. So, just to kind of recap, last year the wheelbase of the car, so the gap between the front wheel and the rear wheel, was unregulated. In theory, you could have a car five meters in wheelbase. Most of the teams were about three point six to three point eight meters, which is longer than uh, an S-Class Mercedes on the road. So these are physically long cars. This year, there's a regulation that enforces a maximum of 3.6 metres. So some teams last year had to lose a bit of length and uh, maybe one or two teams would maybe could potentially even stretch their old cars slightly to, to reach these new regulations. Uh, there is no advantage in going shorter. All of this talk about more agility um, is complete rubbish. You know, it just, it doesn't, it's not borne out by facts. These cars, you know, everyone says, oh, how on earth did the old Mercedes get around the a hairpin at Monaco? Well, if you go to Monaco every day of the week, you see buses going around um, that hairpin. And sometimes one go in each direction. You can find YouTube clips of it. Uh, so 
you know, it's nothing to do with agility. If you make the car shorter, you can make it lighter, but it also makes the underfloor tunnels, which are the kind of the big aero trick for this year, shorter. So you're giving away aero performance. So everyone I expect to be on or around that 3.6 meter length. Um, I think the one uh, people that have come out and said that they're a lot shorter were the Alfa Romeo team. And um, I think that's because they were probably going to struggle to get to the minimum weight. So they decided to crop that car shortly, but that then hinders them in performance now um, for pretty much the rest of the year, because it'd be very hard for them to introduce uh, a longer gearbox or uh, revised suspension or, you know, indeed a, a new monocoque. Now, one of the, uh, the more noticeable differences uh, from last year, certainly, and to the rest of the grid was Red Bull and their side pods. So what's the deal there? Are they hiding something? Uh, no, I mean, I think they've actually shown us what they're going to certainly start the season with. Um, okay. the, uh, it's quite interesting, uh, you know, uh, literally two weeks ago, everyone uh, was telling me that all of these cars are going to look the same and it really just doesn't matter about launching these new cars. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, there's lots that you can change on these cars. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say there's more freedom than before, but because you've got such a big reg change, there's lots of different things you can do with the layout of the car and how you package things. One of them uh, amongst those is the side pods. Now, I don't think a side pod design is going to be, you know, that kind of brawn double diffuser moment. But, and I don't think that side pods are kind of like a primary performance, you know, differentiator between the teams. But the side pods have a couple of impacts because it changes how this underfloor works. And it's the underfloor, these is what the people often call the ground effect or the, the tunnels under the car. Getting them working is you know, the key job for the aerodynamicists and the, you know, the, the car designers. So shaping the side pods actually has a big impact on this um, in probably three ways. First of all, um, how the air flows to the back of the car, um, which is very much what we've been speaking about for the past 10 or more years, slim side pods, et cetera. And that's to get air uh, at the back of the diffuser. And now you've got this wing, this is what we call the beam wing, which is just above the diffuser exit, the back of the car. Uh, getting that working is really important. So the shape of the side pods really um, have an impact on that. Then there's the edge of the floor, which we spoke about a lot last year, because that was where the big regulation changes were for 2021, where they really cleaned up and simplified the edge of the floor. And it was probably then most people only started to realise, certainly those that were you know, quite interested in the tech of the sport, realised how important the floor edge is, particularly the front half of the floor, and actually creating downforce. So how these side pods undercuts work really affects the floor edge. And that is you know, another key way of creating downforce and getting a balance in the car. And then the, the sort of third factor is the shape of the side pods affects how much drag the car has. Now, these new ground effect cars with these big tunnels creating the downforce underneath them are much more efficient. And that means that they can create the downforce without creating lots of drag. So in theory, you can go around corners quickly and you can also go on the straights quickly because you haven't got drag slowing you down. In recent years, teams have been able to kind of sacrifice drag just to get the maximum downforce because skinny side pods really worked the diffuser. And despite the fact that it gave you lots of downforce, it gave you lots of drag with it because the side pods are a real compromise. This year, we're seeing teams playing about with the shapes completely differently. If you take Williams as one extreme where they've got almost no side pod at all. In fact, half of their side pods are actually just wings, just directing air. And then you've got someone like Ferrari or McLaren or Red Bull uh, having quite large side pods. 
And the shape of the side pod, if you look at the Red Bull, it's got this big undercut. So that's working the floor edge. And then the, the main shape going down across the back of the car is sloped. And that's working the diffuser. And the, the general, someone described to me today is a bulk of the side pod is actually reducing the drag of the car because it, it kind of shields the rear wheels slightly. So Red Bull have got a, quite a, a balanced package. If you look at Williams, it's slightly um, less balanced than the Mercedes, um, perhaps slightly less balanced, but I'm expecting the Mercedes to change. McLaren is like Ferrari. They've gone for very big, bulky side pods, uh, which again, reduce the drag uh, and get other aspects of the car working. So I think we're going to start to see some of these concepts fall out of fashion fairly quickly. Um, and Aston Martin are uh, an example. I don't want to say that their problems at the moment are down to uh, the side pods because that's just way too presumptuous. But uh, I think teams will start to realise that there's different ways of getting these cars to work, different ways of packaging things. And we see some the cars at the start of the year look very different, particularly the side pods uh, by the time we get to the back end of the year. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna talk about that because obviously to, towards the end of 2021, that era, um, most of the cars pretty much looked very close to each other. They, you know, they, they they looked very similar, and that's all been what works well learning over the years. Um, when we've come out this year, a lot of the cars they look completely different. So, how do the new um, financial reg- regulations on on what they can spend? Um, how does that affect now them saying, right, this clearly works. Let's go in this direction from maybe a completely different starting point. So do you think the teams will be hesitant to, to take their what, what they brought to testing um, down a certain route? Or do you think they're each going to keep going on the path that they've sort of selected, if you know what I mean? Because these are really different cars. And I, I, I for one, I, I, you're looking at the, you know, a Ferrari and a Mercedes. I thought, are these even racing in the same series? Um, so, you know, if the, if the Mercedes, which we, we assume will be successful, will Ferrari go down that route? And, and can they afford to? Yeah, so it's going to be of all years, um, apart from perhaps last year, which is an unfortunately close uh, <laughs> uh, example, uh, of all years, really, this is the hardest year for you to change direction uh, aerodynamically. As you say, they're very, very different. And there's you know, lots of factors that teams will have to think about. So there's two restrictions, really, on the teams uh, by the regulations. First of all, you've got the budget cap. So I think for the number of races that we've got planned this year, uh, the team's budget is 140 million US dollars, which seems like a huge amount of money um, to make just a few race cars and go around the world um, and pay everyone's um, salaries uh, for a year. But that's all they've got to work with. Then there's another regulation which limits how much aerodynamic design time that they can spend on the car. So that's wind tunnel and CFD. With CFD, as you may know, is being a kind of computerized wind tunnel. So that's going to restrict them. Um, with the wind tunnel testing, uh, the teams that finished highest last year in the Constructors' Championship get the less, the least, and the teams that were at last get the most. So um, Haas were the last in the Championship, if I remember correctly. I never really remember these things. Um, they get 10% more wind tunnel time. Mercedes, uh, who won the Constructors, we have to remember, it doesn't seem to have got spoken about much uh, over the winter, uh, get 10% less than the, the, the middle um, band. So that's really going to restrict them. And then you've got the other factor is that over the past year, these teams have been developing these uh, cars and they obviously dis- think of a, di- a concept and aerodynamic philosophy. And they've looked at lots of things and they've decided this is the one that we're going to go with. 
so for them to dive off that too quickly is kind of admitting defeat and saying, well, there's, you know, there's no hope for what we thought was going to be great. And that's hard for them to do. And then the other factor you've got is when you have a regulation change, the development, every time you go into the wind tunnel, every time you go into the seven post rig, every time a designer sits at their screen and starts thinking about updating a part, you find massive increases in performance. You, know, you find huge amounts of lap time in you know, very short spaces of time. So the development curve's kind of ramping right up. So if you suddenly want to stop where you're at and go and find something else, while you're kind of resetting yourself, everyone is climbing up the ladder. And that means that you've got to look at your budget, your aero budget, your in terms of time in the tunnel and uh, CFD. You've kind of got the saving face aspect of it. And you've got the fact that, you know, you're running to stand still while everyone else is, is going off. It would be very hard for you to change direction through this year. Now, I think some teams will. Some teams will have to. Um, I don't think we've got a concept out there at the moment, which is a complete failure, but, you know, it, we've literally only had sort of three days of running quite restricted for some of the teams. So it's going to be very hard. And, you know, there's going to be some big, tough decisions for the teams to deal with. The only benefit is if they do change direction early, because the regulations are going to be quite stable over the next few years, any work done through this year will pay dividends next year. So a team may actually decide to kind of, scrap this year, um, which seems ridiculous because they've spent two years planning for it, and you know, change concept. Um, and I would I wouldn't want to be the person that would predict who is going to have to do that. But um we'll, we'll keep an eye on that as the uh, as the season wears on. Just kind of on that as well, like one observation I've made, and this could be a total coincidence and I could be you know way off on this. The kind of Ferrari concept of this kind of like this kind of valley on the top of the side pod. I've also noticed it looks like the Haas and the Alpha are more cl- are closer to that, not hugely close, but closer than other teams. Is there any Ferrari engine linked to that, or is it just purely coincidence if there is anything similar? Um, no, I mean, the, the way the regulations are worded, and I'll say this first, is that. Um, every team has to design their own bodywork, and bodywork includes the radiators that go in the side pods or um, in the uh, the middle of the car over the gearbox. So you can't discuss this in between teams. So Haas couldn't go to Ferrari and kind of go, oh, what are you doing? And Haas are going, we're doing this. What are you doing? That's not allowed. And that's the same with Red Bull and uh, I was about to say Toro Rosso. I still haven't got Alpha Tauri locked in my brain. Um, and you know, all the other teams that, that, that share technology. So that simply can't be done. Um, I've got a different set of eyes. I see the, the Alpha, the Haas and the Ferrari as being very different, actually. And the Ferrari is so different from everybody else's that it is very much you know, a design of its own. Um, and it's it's very interesting. It's very clever. Um, so I don't think there's any engine aspect. And again, equally, if you look at all the Mercedes engine cars, they're all completely different. Um, so there's no, I don't think the engine packaging really kind of comes into this. It's down to aerodynamics um, is the key thing. What I found quite interesting is when I first saw the Ferrari, I was trying to think, well, why have they got this kind of big ridge riding around the side pods and that dip in the middle. And I was speculating that there was the radiators were packaged in quite a clever way. Um, it turns out that they're not. So Ferrari, for example, if they wanted, could go to um, a Mercedes 
style side pod, a Red Bull style side pod, quite easily because it's just the bodywork. The radiators inside are packaged quite conventionally. The only thing they couldn't really do is to do what Aston Martin and uh, Alfa Romeo are doing, where you have a, a big undercut going underneath the side pod because they would have to repackage the radiators in which to do that, and which you know, isn't a massive job if Ferrari wanted to do it. But um, I think some of the things have been quite clever. And even if you look at the, the, the Red Bull side pods, um, that kind of odd duck build front to the, the side pod inlet, um, that's a separate piece of bodywork that literally unscrews. Often they will bond that bodywork into the into the car so just to make it a bit easier for the you know, to, to manage with the car. Uh, making that removable means that, you know, in between sessions, they could go from the Red Bull side pod to a Ferrari side pod if they wanted to do so. Uh, most of the teams have kind of taken this approach. I think the teams are quite canny and quite ready to be a bit adaptable to these regulations. So with all the changes that we've spoken about so far, what is the the change going to be like for the drivers? Is it, we've seen, I've seen mixed opinions from some of the drivers about how huge or fundamental a change it is in style of driving. Are there any that you suspect would benefit more than others? Yeah, this is, again, I think this is going to be one of the interesting things as the as the season goes on, because there's a lot for the drivers to cope with. Um, first of all, you've got the ability to follow another car. And as you say, there's lots of quotes from drivers saying good things, and there's some quotes from drivers saying bad things. So can you follow another car easier? And I think generally, just looking at the, you know, the, the physics of which um, Formula One have worked in the one time to get to in the initial comments is, yes, it's improved. Is it, you know, a panacea for being able to follow an, every car like an old Formula Ford in the 1970s? And I don't think we're going to get to that stage because at the end of the day, these cars producing huge amounts of downforce. It churns the air up. It's unavoidable. But these cars should be able to follow each other a lot closer. Uh, the drivers are also saying that the DRS effect is quite large. And that's important because when you clean up the wake of the cars, which is the kind of the turbulence that follows the car, uh, which is what has made it quite difficult for one car to follow another up to this point. When you clean that up in the way that they've done with these cars, what you also do is rob the car of the slipstream effect. So a car you can follow onto a straight really close, and then you don't have that kind of slipstream, that toe, as we call it, along the straight. So you still need DRS, and it looks as though with this kind of quite chunky rear wing that they've got, DRS is still going to be quite effective just to kind of get you alongside. And I'm sure that we're going to find that the DRS... Uh, zones around the lap change quite significantly from uh, for this year. Actually, much much shorter, potentially less DRS zones because you only kind of just need it just to edge up to a car, not to have a kind of a slam dunk move. That's always been the concept. So that should really improve. So you've got that aspect of the have the regulations worked, and I'm still feeling confident. Um, albeit I've always been one champion in these rules, so you know I've got a slight bias there. Um, and then you've got how the cars feel for the drivers. That kind of undefinable thing about what makes a driver happy in a car. And if we look at Daniel Ricciardo last year in the McLaren, clearly he wasn't happy in that car last year. So you've got things that are going to change. So you're going to have the tyres feel different. Um, And the tyres this year, you can throw them around a little bit more. So drivers that do like to really push in with the steering a lot, Charles Leclerc being a, you know, maybe a classic example. Uh, so if Roman, Roman Groschon was back in the sport this year, he would love these tyres. You can slide them without them overheating. Um, they're a lot more durable. Um, and then you've got how the car uh, with the tyres turns in. And with the big balloon tyres that we've had, 
you kind of have a latency between you turning and that entire tire carcass twisting and finally giving you that grip and change of direction. So that should be a lot more direct. And I think the drivers by and large would all like that. We're not quite sure how the rear tires are going to cope with that now, because if you start to throw a car into a corner, will the rear tires grip? And you know, um, certainly looking at the, the footage from Barcelona, it looks as though the cars are quite well balanced. Uh, the cars certainly don't appear to be able to use the curbs as aggressively as they used to. Uh, and I think that's a good thing because of track limits and uh, all sorts of odd infringements that we've had and equally damage. And then how these tyres um, cope with a whole weekend. Because previously, um, you know, always you've had to get a tyre working into its tyre temp- into its temperature range. You know, it can't be too hot. It can't be too cold. It needs to be just perfect. And last year's tyres were quite peaky. If you slid them, they overheated. Um, if the temperature or your setup didn't suit them, you can start to play about with the brakes. And it's an odd that you can actually play with the brakes and even the hybrid system to an extent. If you remember brake warming and uh, Hamilton's incident in uh, Baku, I think it was, wasn't it? Um, you can actually get heat from the brakes to go into the tyres or heat from the brakes, keep them away from the tyres to get the tyre temperature working. Lots of those tricks have gone now. So if a team or a, a driver can't get that tyre into its working range, then they have a problem. Some drivers are good at this. You know, if you look back through history, tyre management's always been a kind of a key skill of a driver. You know, if you think of someone like Alan Prost, for example, that just always seems to be able to get them to work. Uh, Hamilton, equally, is another driver that's just able to get the tyres working the way lots of other drivers can't. So I think some drivers are going to really struggle on some weekends. and You're just going to be looking at them going, well, you know, last weekend you was on pole, this weekend you're out in Q1. And it's just because you can't get these tyres working because you haven't got the tricks Uh, to play with that you've had previously. So I think it could be quite an inconsistent season, which also adds to maybe the excitement for us fans as well, that, you know, one weekend, Alpine get it right. And um, one weekend, Verstappen doesn't. So, yeah, I think that that could add to the jeopardy of the season. And uh, in terms of predicting it, (laughs) I'm not going there. Uh, that's not my area of expertise, but I think it is a factor that will come in and it will certainly make the, the season more enjoyable. Do, do you think, uh, and I know you said you weren't going to predict it, but I'm going to I'm going to just nudge a little bit here. Um, that's the whole point of podcast is to make <laughs> ridiculous predictions. Um, in, in terms of, let's, let's say Mercedes, right? So we've got uh, George Russell starting this era in a new car versus Lewis, who's very, very used to his Mercedes team and the old Mercedes. Do you think that, that, that potentially gives George Russell a... a I mean, I would think it gives him an advantage because he's coming in to a new car. He knows he, he, he he's, he's ready to adapt. He's also younger. Um, I mean, Lewis being a seven-time world champion, do you, do you think any of that comes into it or it, it, it's all irrelevant and we're just going to have to wait and see? Uh, well, they're, they're certainly valid points. Um, but you have to remember that, you know, um, Russell has yeah, raced for Mercedes, does a lot of testing uh, in the simulator with them. You know, he's a huge, oh God knows how much work he's done over the winter with them. Um, yeah, yeah, I think of all seasons, this would be the best one to, you know, to take on Lewis Hamilton. Um, how much that tips the balance, I don't know, because there's so many other factors involved. Um, you know, these cars are completely different. Um, you know, drivers are very different stage of their careers. Um, motivation. 
you know, you, I think you could argue both directions for um, certainly for Hamilton. You know, is he going to be on a motivated season, or maybe he's you know thinking of other things? I'd, I, I, I don't want to try and get inside his mind. Uh, so yeah, I think it will be. It, it, it is a great opportunity for him. Um, and I think that could be one of Mercedes's downfalls this year. We've got two very good drivers. Um, you know, I'm no judge of, of drivers. You know, I don't, I don't, I think Hamilton's record stands for itself. George Russell, you know, you could jump on the hype train, which, you know, may, maybe I'm a little bit here, but there's a, very few people are saying that he's anything other than, the, you know, the real deal. And is you know, a very good, uh, Formula One driver. Uh, so, if Russell starts to get race wins this year, which is entirely realistic, um, they're potentially race wins that Hamilton won't be getting. So, you know, what, what, what's Mercedes uh, aim this year? Is it for that um, ninth constructors championship? If I can think my numbers are right, or are they going to go all out for the, uh, the driver's championship, which they didn't get in 21 and, you know, team orders, Mm, yeah, it could be it could be a, a bit of a sticky situation, and um, what is currently quite a nice sort of bromance could uh, go go rapidly downhill. Um, it's you know it, it, I think that that dynamic is going to be quite interesting this year, uh, and it will be the same for every team. You know, if they're having a good year, um, Alpine, you know, Ocon, Alonso, Ferrari, you know, the the, the potential for fireworks between Sainz and Leclerc, uh, you know, is quite obvious. I think the only person in the uh, in the pound seats really is Verstappen, knowing that you know uh, Perez is there very much as um, a wingman, and I don't know if you know Perez is you know at anywhere close to the, the level that Verstappen would be. And again, with Verstappen's tail being up after his um, uh, season in twenty one, and uh, what's looking to be a very good car. Um, it's looking very good again for them this year, isn't it? So um, you can see all of these different dynamics coming in. And um, I don't think the performance you see in the first handful of races is necessarily going to be a barometer for how the whole season will, will go. I think the season will be very up and down. Yeah, it, it certainly feels, or at least to me, that Mercedes are kind of, in some ways, going back to the kind of Rosberg-Hamilton relationship that you saw I think Russell will be much more a kind of match for Lewis in that sense. Um, and also they've got to be careful because Russell's the future, right? Um, yeah. But one thing that has come up a lot in testing and it's kind of the the, you know, the word of testing, and I think it was actually, uh, you, you know where I'm going with this, I think Mario Andresi phrased the coin, but I was wondering if you could tell us or tell our listeners a little bit about porpoising. And why maybe McLaren have kind of seemed to be more comfortable with it than the other teams? Yeah, this was this has been quite unusual um, and unexpected. Poor, poor poisoning has existed in motor racing since we start to create downforce, and the way uh, uh, poor poisoning, poor poisoning, if you want to pronounce it, um, uh, exhibits itself is that when you're near top speed, the car starts bouncing up and down in a kind of a, a sort of low frequency way, which is very disconcerting from the outside and probably really deeply unpleasant for the, for the driver. I remember uh, Martin Brundle saying he used to get it a lot, uh, testing the Ligiers, um, and it's just, you know, it makes you seasick. Um, it's not good um, for uh, performance, although it doesn't kind of actually rob you on that particular lap, but it's not something that you want. So what's happening with poor poising is as the car accelerates, 
Um, at first, you kind of got the cars off the ground. You know, you've got a few centimetres of ground clearance underneath it. As the car goes faster and faster, the aerodynamics work. So the front wings and the underfloor push the car down onto the ground with the downforce. So by the time you're going at near maximum speed, the car squish right down to the track, particularly the tail of the car. The back, the back axle rides a little bit lower than the front does. And at some point, potentially, uh, when you're at that stage, the aerodynamics, particularly under the car, um, the front wing in particular, and then in particular the, uh, the the ground effect tunnels, can stop working for a number of reasons. And we won't go into that because it starts to get very technical very, very quickly. And when they stop working, basically all that downforce is lost. So the springs bounce back up. But once the springs bounce back up, the aerodynamics start working again and it sucks the car down. And that's why you get this up, down, up, down, up, down until you either change your speed or something else happens to the car. And it can be, you know, set off by bumps. It can be a particular speed, a particular track, it's suspension set up, it's bodywork flexing, it's the aerodynamic design. Lots of factors involved. And it was a surprise to me that the teams got caught out by this because then it's, you know, it's no secret these cars could suffer with this. Um, but everything most of the teams have done seems to have been completely unable to predict this. And that kind of goes to show that, you know, tyres squashing, bodywork flexing, bumps on the track, all these things coming together for the first time can lead to unpredictable situations, which Paul Poison gives you. Um, some teams will have it, some don't. So lots of people have kind of pointed out that McLaren simply couldn't pour boys. Um, and that to me is a ridiculous comment to make. Um, equally a team that has suffered with it quite badly. And I think the video going around of the Ferrari in particular makes people point at the Ferrari more than other teams. It could literally be just the difference between, you know, a few millimetres of ride height or a different strength spring or even just a little rubber packer uh, in the suspension um, uh, bump stop in conventional kind of road car terms. Um, could rid that for the whole season. I mean, it's as subtle as that. Uh, so I think a lot of the media have kind of seen this and have you know, really jumped on it. I don't think this is necessarily going to be the story of the season. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I don't live to regret that comment. But I think this is just one of these things. The cars have only had a few days on track. Uh, they'll all go away. They'll have a little play about. And they may lose a tiny amount of performance to try and get rid of it and to make sure that it's not going to come back. But you know, it's not this. This isn't something inherent to any car's design. Um, I don't think anyone has dropped a clanger of those proportions where they simply couldn't engineer this out in the way that they would do normally. Um, equally, you have to remember that a lot of the cars testing in Barcelona, shaking down, sure, should I say, at Barcelona, um, were very much interim cars. They will change for the Bahrain test. They will probably change again for the Bahrain race. And certainly once we start to get into the kind of the, the, the rhythm of the season, so, you know, there's lots of very early specification bodywork on those cars, very early spec suspension components and setups. So, you know, this will all change very rapidly. But that's not to say that at one race this year, it happens for a car, you know, some odd mix of situations that, you know, for some reason in the race, Verstappen's just car starts bouncing around and it's like, mm, I thought we got rid of that. Uh, so you know, that can happen. You know, I'm not saying that it's you know, it, you know they've, they've got something to, to get rid of it totally. It is one of those kind of quite subtle setup issues. So we can see it come and go uh, through the year, but I think by and large, I, I think it's going to be a story that gets forgotten 
relatively quickly once we get racing. Do you, do you think it adds to the excitement? Because like you said, you one would expect um, teams with, with, with everything that they've got at their disposal to, to, to for this not to happen in this era. Um, does that give us a bit of excitement that there are still things that are not going to go to plan. Uh, think, you know, when you get cars racing each other on track, we don't actually know what's going to happen. Is this a good thing? It is. I mean, again, I, I said I was surprised because I know the, the rigour in which the teams go about, you know, preparing for all of this stuff and the fact that it didn't come up at all. Um it's, I don't know if that's good or bad that, you know, the teams are fallible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, I, my, my part of my job is to kind of talk about how fantastical these designers are. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels a bit, a, a bit hypocritical to suddenly go, oh, you got it wrong. Um, but they have. And, yeah, I think the jeopardy of this season is going to be in those subtleties through the, you know, the year. You know, the clouds come over after qualifying, before the race, and you know, suddenly your tyres aren't working or, you know, some bumps appear in the circuit and you can't tune the limited and simpler suspension that you've got to get rid of that. Um, And, you know, maybe we will yet to see some clever, killer um, add-on device to the car that really makes one car work over another. So it's utterly unpredictable. Uh, As much as I say, I think the order generally will be about the same. Um, they will shuffle around in and amongst those, you know, sometimes perhaps quite radically uh, through the year. And, um, you know, hopefully it will make for a, a fantastic Netflix series next year. <laughs> and we just get the cameras at the right teams when they're having a bad weekend uh, mm. and try and capture some of that. Uh, well, one thing that we've seen, we've, we, we, we do love about F1, well, I do anyway, is when a team finds a loophole and, and it creates a massive drama. And um, do, you, do you think any loopholes have been found in the new technical regulations? Uh, might Possibly too early to say. But do you also think there's, how much scope is there to find some loopholes that will really change things um, over the next couple of years? Um, from what I've seen, there are certainly little, details, particularly with the aerodynamic, because that's all we can see at this stage, um, that maybe weren't um, what the rulemakers envisaged when they, they wrote those regulations. Um, but what you're talking about here are little flicks of bodywork and little tiny things, not something that's really going to make the difference between, you know, P20 and P1. Um, there's, um, I think, less scope for a really big thing to come along uh, this year. But then again, you know, we, we, as I say, suspension is an area, um, brakes management. And I think one of the areas which the FIA have um, definitely um, under-considered um, from, from my conversations with them is this brake-to-tyre relationship in terms of managing heat. Because as much as the aim was to take that whole um, aspect of it out of the um, regulations, there is still scope there. And if a team wants to work really hard, and if you look at the Red Bull inner brake ducts, they're you know incredible pieces of kit that even I, you know, I've not got my head around it yet, quite what they're trying to do there. Um, there are some areas where teams will start to play, and I think this will be an area of antagonism between the teams. You know, we saw that last year. Bodywork flexibility, again, is going to be a, a big thing that's going to get discussed, particularly with the floor edge. Um, um, sinking suspension, you know, it's it's useful this year 
um, because you can stall the underfloor. If you get the suspension to cope with it, you you know what what starts starts off as poor boys and can actually end up being the collapsing suspension that they've had for so many years and was kind of really typified by Mercedes um, late last year. Uh, although it's been on cars for, for donkey's years. Um, so, yeah, there's, I think there is scope for people to get quite angry with each other about aspects of car design. But in terms of them being, honestly, something really big, really important, I, I haven't seen anything like that yet. One thing I, I think we can all agree that we don't want to see this year is a Belgium Grand Prix repeat. Um, <laughs> and on that, Will the cars be able to run in the wet better? Will the spray situation have improved with the new cars? Or will even it, uh, you know, I've seen some people suggest it might even be worse. Um, uh, it's got, there's a couple of things there. I think if we talk about spray first. So if you, if we kind of generalise the aerodynamics of cars up until this year, all the aerodynamics have tried to do is to push all of the air on the car away at the sides and a little bit of it goes up, but you're trying to minimize the, the spray going up in the air. So though for a car following behind, it means that you've got a low but wide spray of dirty air, which in the wet means spray. So that's very bad. The regulations this year try to do quite the opposite. They're trying to keep the wake of the car very narrow and thrown up in the air. Uh, which means that if you're following another car, it means that you can be, you know, slightly off centre to it and still be in quite clean air, which is obviously what, why these cars are hopefully able to overtake each other uh, that little bit easier, certainly able to follow each other a lot easier. So that means that the spray should be going the same direction. So while maybe on the TV cameras, we'll see, and um, we certainly see in the photography, the spray going right up in the air behind the cars. From the point of view of a car behind, that spray's going over your head. So while you'll see the spray going up, it's not kind of going in your face. And if you go five foot to the left, you know, that spray's not there. So in lots of respects, the aerodynamics should help it. Um, how much that is a real benefit, you know, uh, I'm not a racing driver, um, but hopefully it should, should make things easier. But then you've got the fundamental question of cars with the level of performance of Formula One cars, to run in the wet. And if you look at, you know, I don't know if you've any of you guys have been to Belgium, but when it rains there, you know, it rains thick, you know, yeah. it's like an inch of water <laughs> running along the ground at least. Yeah. Um, and for a car to be able to disperse that water with the tyres, um, it's just not possible. Um, I think it was Bridgestone used to have the monsoon wets. Uh, but the FIA said, well, look, when the rain is that bad, you've got so much standing water that you know, it's ridiculous to race. So there's always, I think, going to be a situation where the rain's really bad. They just won't race because it's just, you know, it, it's the physics of the situation. You can't go, you know, 5G corner in 200 miles an hour um, with that much water on the track. You know, no tyre is going to be able to cope with that. Um, and then one other little thing which has become quite apparent from testing is that these cars, you know, cars recently, they've had loads of ride height at the back, rake, as we've called it. So the only bit that touches the track is just the very front of the splitter and that plank under the car. The rest of the car can be like 10, 15 centimetres off the track. This year, the car is going to be flat down to the track, which means that that plank will be rubbing its entire length, rubbing along the circuit. And that is bad when you get to wet weather conditions because that's going to kind of aquaplane. It will lift, literally lift the wheels or the tyres off the circuit. So I think that is 
one of the negative factors uh, of these new car designs. Um, and you know, Pirelli have done wet weather testing at both the, you know, the Barcelona shakedown and through 2021 um, with, with wet tracks. So um, hopefully you know, the situation will be a bit better managed from a Pirelli point of view, a, a team point of view, particularly from the FIA and race steward point of view. You know, uh, sadly, if, a, if the weather's too bad, we just shouldn't race. And someone just immediately makes that bold decision early um, rather than mucking about with a fiasco that we had in, in Spa last year. Um, but so often, you know, you know, uh, as I say, again, if you've been to, to, to Spa, it, it can be raining one minute and you could be down to your, your shorts and your vest uh, the next uh, getting sunburned. So it's, you know, it's an unpredictable situation. I literally spent 200 quid on a waterproof jacket at Spa and then got sunburned. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, I can relate. Yeah, I think only testing at Silverstone gives you broader weather options yeah. um, than, a, than a race at Spa. Yeah. So you followed F1, I think you said, since the late 70s mm-hmm. and seen so many eras is this the most excited you've been for an era? Do you think it could be the best era? How much further can F1 go from here? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, there's, 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 uh, uh, it's far, odd when I kind of look back. Um, I think every 10 years comes a little sweet spot in the car design and the competition and just everything about it. And, um, you know, you can kind of look at like 1991 as a bit of one, uh, the 2000s. For me, 82 and 83 were kind of a key year for me in Formula One with regulation changes and technology. Funnily enough, will be last had ground effect. Um, the regulation changes this year, yes. Um you know, I'm excited as, as a kid in a sweet shop with these regulation changes, not just because of what they you know are on paper, because I think they've actually obviously got a great package of regulation changes, but it's a directional thing and a process thing. So in the past, regulation changes seem to have been made, you know, in an afternoon, written the next morning by someone that's not an engineer thrown out there and, it, you know, whatever the aim of them was, was immediately undermined by the team, you know, loopholes, badly written regulations, no one's thought things through. And if you look at the noses in 2014, you know, that was obvious to me immediately on reading those regulations. It's like, they're going to have a big finger sticking at the end of their nose. Uh, that can't be right. Um, sadly, it was. These regulations have actually been designed over an extended period of time with a clear set of objectives by engineers and as I sort of mentioned earlier so you know you have uh, Ross Braun and Pat Simmons leading it and then Jason Sonneville Craig Wilson and a whole heap of other people there's literally I wouldn't call them I, I tried to describe them when I spoke to them last year as like the 11th Formula 1 team and they really kind of played it down it's like <laughs> we're nowhere near that level there's you know 20 of us or something but they've actually gone about selecting the rules with some rigour so they have the ideas they test them in the wind tunnel um, they'll then go and discuss them with other people and look at them, you know, from a, a, a team designer point of view. How am I going to get around this? And then go back to the wording, go back to the wind tunnel and go around this, this kind of loop. And that's why we have you know, less of the big, obvious loopholes in here. Lots of them are just little, you know, people just being able to change a surface over 10 millimetres of uh, length or something. You know, that's about as much as they've got, got to uh, get away with this year. So if they can continue these regulations in that way and think about, you know, 
um, how we improve overtaking, how we reduce costs, how we make the car smaller, lighter, more sustainable, all of those other factors. Um, it really puts Formula One on a really good path that I've never really seen apart from that a brief moment in 2008 leading into the 2009 season when we actually had the overtaken working group, which I think was funded by probably not much more than a million pounds, which was just clearly not enough, and then immediately forgotten. So I think, yeah, I am probably am, despite lots of really bad things happening through last year, um, I'm probably more optimistic about Formula One's future at the moment than I have been for a long time. So I think, yeah, I think they've done a great job. And, um, you know, I don't think that will necessarily play out to make 2022 a classic season. I think it might end up being, but I think it's the, yeah, it's the, the long-term view that I think we've got now, which I think will be, you know, it's probably one of the things that's getting me quite so excited. And, and, and again, I know we've mentioned it before, but do you think, obviously we want cars close together that can race. That's the whole objective um, of this. Do, do you, do you think the cost cap will prevent, possibly prevent that this season? If it, if, if the performance is so different? I think the problem is, is and again, you said every car looks so different. Uh, now, two cars that look totally different, I and mean, you could look at 2021 with the Red Bull and the Merck, for an example, could be so different in approach, can actually deliver exactly the same lap mm. time. I think this year we're going to have lots of very different cars that produce lots of very different lap times. So I think, unfortunately, we get a bit of field spread this year, which might maybe undermine some people's perception of how good these regulation changes are. So I don't think 2022 is the test for the new regulations. And I think certainly the budget cap and the aero restrictions, um, aero testing restrictions, won't bite for another year or so. Certainly next year, we'll really start to see the difference. Um, that said, some teams always operate better than others. And, you know, you just have to look at Mercedes since 2014, how well they operate as a team, um, you know, on the design side, on the engineering and the operation side. Uh, yeah, that, teams like that are always going to do well. Teams that are a little bit disorganised, have internal turmoil, and I think we know what teams we're talking about here. Uh, teams that you know maybe don't quite reach that level of budget in the first place and haven't had the investment and the stability um, are going to do worse. I think there will always be an imbalance, but I think we're going to see them certainly pack up much tighter as we get up towards the next regulation changes in 2026. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but do you think the sport has sorted itself out in time for this season? Obviously, we ended with a bit of a bitter taste in our mouth. Um, <laughs> do you think enough has been done to make sure that um, the, 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 the integrity of this sport is maintained going into next year? I don't think enough. Well, I mean, it, it, you can only say if it's been done, if, it, if it's proven to do so. We haven't right. even had the first race yet. Indeed. Um, I think probably it's fair to say that there is now a much clearer intention to make sure the sport is more transparent and better run. Um, I think there's more change is still required. Um, I think some of the things that were suggested uh, in, in the report are not maybe the, the ideal solution, uh, maybe not some of the ideal people and ways of doing things, but, you know, we've got to give them a, a chance. But I think, I think the main thing is that maybe the sport had kind of drifted a little bit. And you have to remember that the sport is governed generally now in a very different way to the way it was in what I suppose you could describe as the Bernie era, um, where, in some respects, maybe in, in that era, more was being done to manipulate the sport <laughs> than it was in the post-Bernie era. It just 
doesn't come across that way. And we I think the sport that, is yeah. kind of maturing mm. into um, um, uh, a, a much more, much better run uh, operation. And I think that takes time and um, it needs to prove itself. And yeah, I know there's a huge amount of fans out there that really need uh, to have it proven to them that, you know, uh, some of the lessons have been learned. And, um, you know, uh, you just have to post anything about one or two particular teams or drivers and, you know, on social media, and you just get this wall of, uh, yeah, uh, anger um, and uh, general ill behaviour um, to see that you know, some people aren't happy. Maybe that's just how, you know, motorsport is in the world of social media. But um, I think we're, well, I think we're on the right, the right path. Um, mm. And um, certainly... Um, the, the people now running the sport and running the FAA are maybe a bit more um, focused on this than has been um, in recent years and historically. So I think that's good. Yeah, and, and, and you know, one thing I was talking about with our team was in order to hate something, you have to love it in the first place. But we're coming into a new <laughs> era now and um, it's a sport we love. So let, let, all of that has to go behind us. What's happened has happened. And we've got huge changes this year. Um, exciting drivers in different places and there is so much to look forward to this year so um, that is really, certainly how I'm looking at it everything that's happened has, has happened um, they still have to prove to me that they've sorted it out though um, but Craig one team uh, I'm not going to ask you who's going to win the 2022 world championship despite how much I want to but before, before we leave you who has really impressed you um, coming into this year and, and who's your one to watch uh, we're, we're not going to quote you at the end of the season okay. so, uh, that's an interesting but, question yeah yeah. Um, I think two teams have impressed me I think um, the one that really has impressed me is Williams now obviously they've got a history uh, as long as I have in, in, in watching the sport um, and it's been a quite sad to see the state that they've been in. And then they come out with this car. Now, I'm not saying the FW44 is a, a, a new brawn. Um, it may even be still at the back of the grid. Um, but I think just the attitude of Williams and the, you know, the aggression, the optimism they've shown um, fighting back uh, is has really impressed me. Uh, they've got some really good people on board. It's going to take some time. And, you know, hopefully they have the, the money and the, the stability to, to kind of bring that through. Now, it's not the Williams that we used to have. You know, it's clearly now a very different entity. But, um, you know, you still have the name over the door. And uh, I think that's that for me has been one of the one of the great things seeing this this season uh, open up. Equally, Aston Martin as well, uh, being very aggressive uh, with the car. Again, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be fast. But um, I think you've seen some of the intent from, from Aston Martin in terms of how committed they are to getting this done right. Uh, so I think that was they're probably the, the, the teams that most um, Im, impressed me. Ones to watch. Mm. Um, I think it's very easy to fall in the trap, as we all do every year uh, after testing in San Ferrari. Um, so I won't. <laughs> how often have we have we you know jumped on the hype train? This is yeah, the year. This is the year. Um, yeah. <laughs> and again, you know, Ferrari, another team with you know incredible history, and I think it's good for the sport that they do do well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one to watch. 
Um, I I have um, a sneaking suspicion Alpine. Now, they've not really shown a car that's kind of wowed me. Um, they had some problems during testing, which weren't power unit. But um, I think they're going to have some difficult times, certainly in the first part of this year. But I think if you were to keep an eye on how things are progressing, um, Alpine are the team to have a look at because, you know, they were a dark horse last year mm. uh, for a victory. Um, I think very much they um, they would be uh, again this year. So, uh, yeah, I think Alpine would be more on to watch because I think there's lots of other obvious people that will be at the front and obvious people that will be at the back. So I think Alpine could kind of jump um, quite suddenly if they just get that package working nicely. So Scarb says Alpine for the 22 championship. <laughs> He'll be on the website tomorrow, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Someone keep, someone keep asking me about L Plan, and I'm not quite exactly sure what L Plan is. Bear in mind, it's a French team, and it wouldn't be L Plan. It would be Le Plan, surely. But uh, yes. Um, yeah. Yes, keep an eye on them. Well, that I feel like I've I've just had a real lesson. I've, I've learned so much. I don't know about you guys. Um, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. And... Um, uh, educating us because um, uh, you really have you've educated me and I've learned a heck of a lot so um, thank you and um, Sam James anything else from yourself selves uh, no just to say it's it's been a pleasure and like Ollie says it's been yeah very informative in a in a very engaging way absolutely loved it and every day's a school day indeed um Scarbs, Craig, if any, if people want to follow you, follow your updates, follow the, the progress through the season, um, where can they uh, where can they do it? Well, probably the best place is Twitter uh, for me. Um, everything I do turns kind of sort of circulates around there. Um, so at Scarbs Tech uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, and I did have a play with TikTok briefly, but please don't 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 go that rabbit hole. <laughs> um, so yeah. Keep an eye on Twitter and I'll let you know what I'm up to and what's going on around the world. Equally, if you have a F1 TV, um, I do tech talk, race commentary uh, for Formula One there. And uh, that's bound to be lots of fun this year, looking at these cars with the uh, the access and the video that we've got. So uh, keep an eye out there as well. Absolutely amazing. Well, thanks for joining us. We will catch up again soon to get the latest information for our listeners right here. Uh, but until then, Craig, thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Great, great to have some uh, unusual questions thrown at me. It always uh, keeps you on your toes. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much. Catch up with you again later this season. Network.